Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. Farming these days is a downright scientific enterprise. Precise measurement of soil, water, air, seed conditions all figure in. The work never stops for scientists at the Agricultural Research Service. One of them has been named a meritorious senior professional in this year's Presidential Rank Awards, Bill Custis joins me now. Dr. Custis, good to have you on. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And you're toiling away there at the Agricultural Research Service in Beltsville, Maryland. And tell us about your work. It seems to concern something pretty vital to farming, and that is the interaction of soil with moisture and the atmosphere and so on. My research has been in the development of foundational advances in the measurement and theory of plant water use, also known as evapotranspiration, or in short, ET. Its application in climate and water sciences and their connections to water resources management. That sounds like one of the grand challenges then in agriculture, especially as water supplies get squirrely or dry up in different areas, is just the minimum amount of moisture applied to get the crops to grow properly without wasting a drop. Is that the general theory that you're working on? Yes. So we're trying to develop the technology using remote sensing, principally from satellite observations, to help in determining the actual plant water use. And that information becomes essential in trying to develop water use efficiency measures to improve the application and conservation of water resources. And what is in satellite imagery that can tell you that? So one of the key inputs that we use is land surface temperature. And the temperature you can think of for plants is critical because plants regulate their temperatures to, you know, develop the biomass and to ultimately affects yield. So temperature is tightly coupled to water use. So plants bring in carbon and they lose water as well, but that water helps regulate their temperatures. So by observing the temperature, we have an observation of the plant condition and how it's doing. And how does that translate, say, to an individual field where, you know, temperatures vary from county to county or even from, you know, within a zip code, this type of thing? Can this also be coupled with measuring things right there on the ground in this soybean field here. Yeah, so with satellites and in principle Landsat, so the land satellite system has a resolution that looks at temperatures down to uh, almost 30 meter resolution. So within field observations are possible with this satellite system. And that can be used in combined with a modeling tools that we've been developing to estimate the amount of water loss in individual fields. Got it. So would you call this, say, applied research? That is to say, if you determine this is the rate of water loss in this area, how does that translate into what, say, a farmer should do in a given spot? Right. So this type of information can be made available to farmers, and it's starting to do with the Open ET project. That is a NASA, USGS, uh, involves universities, as well as Google Earth Engine, and, and also nonprofit, including the Environmental Defense Fund, that are developing this technology so that farmers can actually go to a website 
and actually look at their fields to see how they're doing in terms of water use and conditions in terms of stress and so forth. So this information can ultimately be applied and used by farmers to help determine amount of water being used and how they can regulate it to better levels. We're speaking with Dr. Bill Custis. He's a scientist at the Agricultural Research Service and the recipient of a Presidential Rank Award. I guess farming then is all about fine-tuning to local conditions these days as opposed to just running the sprinkler for an hour like we did in the early 20th century. Yes. So with some of this new technology that's being offered, farmers have the type of information that they can improve upon their irrigation management and scheduling. And that becomes really important as we deal with droughts, more frequency of droughts, for example, and that becomes a real important input now that farmers and growers can use. And in the course of examining this over the years, I wonder if you've come across, besides watering techniques and strategies, more about what certain types of crops and seeds do better in different conditions and maybe fine-tuning what's planted as well. Yeah, that's true. Some of this work is now being used in evaluating different genotypes for crops. What they're finding is that the ultimate yield and water use are so tightly coupled that they can start to develop crops that utilize less water but maintain acceptable yields, especially in areas that are water limited. Yeah, so you'd call that agricultural productivity, I guess, right? Right. In terms of its productivity, there's a term called drop per crop, you know, in terms of trying to maximize yield for the amount of water available to apply. Now, your Presidential Rank Award, Meritorious Senior Service, is this because of this project with NASA, USGS, ARS, and Google Earth and so on? And what did they tell you they gave you the award for? <laughs> so it's really about the work that I've done laying the foundational modeling effort that can utilize this satellite data and produce reliable water use and plant stress estimates. And because this modeling tool is robust enough that it can be applied to various landscapes and conditions, it's being used in both the OpenET project, which has started out west and is expanding across the continental U.S. to be applied, as well as in the European Space Agency, they have a project using their suite of Sentinel satellites that they have orbiting, and they're utilizing this modeling tool in terms of doing even things at a global scale. Interesting. And just personally, how did you come to this particular branch of research? Well, it really started with my PhD work at Cornell with my uh, advisor. He was developing the theory of using atmospheric information to get at evapotranspiration. And when I came to USDA, they were developing remote sensing methods, and I was then able to tie what I was doing in the atmosphere, what was happening with the remote sensing aspects, and coupling those into what we have today. But you didn't come out of the Iowa cornfields where your dad labored for years and years and years. That's not the story here, right? Right. So initially, I was doing this type of work in natural ecosystems, but it transferred easily over to what we do in agriculture. 
and realize that agriculture includes grasslands, prairies. You know, these are all part of agriculture. They're all utilized by agriculture. So it's more than just soybean and corn that we're dealing with. Yeah. And do you find that at the Agricultural Research Service, that sounds like a a place that's supportive of lots of ideas and the daily life is very much data-driven and research-oriented, sounds like. Yeah, they really support the basic research as well as applied, and they realize that some of this basic research takes considerable time to develop into something that ultimately becomes operational. You know, the work that I've been doing, which started, you know, 30-something years ago, is now coming to fruition. And now that we have the technology capabilities of making this data available and more routine methods, including, you know, ultimately on, on your smartphone is the ultimate goal, where, yeah. where farmers could go in the field and actually see their field from their phone. And as more and more commercial entities launch more and more fine-grained satellites, it sounds like the potential in the future is to get even more detailed and more resolution at what's looked at. Yeah, that's true. There are commercial entities out there that are developing small satellites that orbit lower to the atmosphere so they can set up a suite of satellites that give more information. And, you know, most importantly, if we can observe what's happening, then we can predict what's happening. So observational measurements are really key in in being able to continuously monitoring what's going on on the Earth's surface. And just a final question, ultimately, with this OpenET project, why only farmers? Could someone, say a homeowner, say, gee, I want to get this fescue even greener. Now I know (laughs) on my phone exactly when and how to water it. Well, you know, some of the work that's ongoing is, is understanding the urban environment, understanding water use by golf courses and and other entities that grass grown in in urban environments. And these types of satellite observations can be used to better understand, again, developing water-saving strategies in urban environments. And also how important green space is in urban environments in dealing with heat waves and so forth that are becoming more and more prevalent. And maybe it's time to learn how to putt on a sand green. (laughs) Dr. Bill Custis is a scientist at the Agricultural Research Service and the recipient of a Presidential Rank Award. Thanks so much for a fascinating piece of insight. Well, thank you for having me. I hope it's interesting for those folks who listen to your broadcast. Yep, we love that kind of stuff. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is 
And, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and in the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply. 
that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus. Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture 
and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model, 
has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.